0: Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendaro, and in this episode, I sit down with artist Nathan Fowkes. Nathan is a veteran entertainment industry concept artist with credits on 12 animated feature films, including DreamWorks Animations, The Prince of Egypt, several projects within the Shrek universe, How to Train Your Dragon, and many others. Additionally, Nathan has been sought after as a consultant for game studios to enhance the quality of their theatrical presentations. He has worked with numerous clients including Blizzard Entertainment, Disney Interactive, Riot Games, and many others. Nathan is also well-known as a teacher of color, light, and design. He is a regular guest lecturer at Art Center College of Design and has taught at the Los Angeles Academy of Figure of Arts. He is the author of the best-selling book, How to Draw Portraits in Charcoal, and How to Paint Landscapes in Watercolor and Gouache. Nathan teaches online at Schoolism.com when his film production schedule allows. I first found Nathan's work on Instagram and immediately signed up for his Schoolism class on landscape sketching. The way that Nathan breaks down composition and color should be required study for anyone in the visual arts. Schoolism has offered a discount code to the listeners of this podcast, which gets you $5 off for the first six months using promo code RITONDARO, spelled R-I-T-O-N-D-A-R-O. I have no affiliation with him, and this is not a sponsored podcast, But i am a huge fan of what they are doing i've also linked to nathan's books website and his instagram page in the show notes and i highly recommend checking them out he shares some great bits of advice and wisdom in this episode and i hope you enjoy hey nathan Hey, how
1: are you Todd? Good.
0: Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I have admired your work for a very long time and uh, I'm very excited to ask you a bunch of questions. Well,
1: you are very generous. I'll do my best.
0: (laughs) You know, I think I first discovered your work. It must have been online through your, uh, your sketchbooks and your just sort of daily posting of your, your landscape
1: stuff. And I'm just curious what, what started you down the art path? That's a, that's a really good question. Everyone just, kind of feels like an idiot once in a while. Just, you know, you're, you're an average person, you, you go through life and you do your thing. But uh, I got some attention from drawing and I loved it. You know, every kid draws and then they kind of move into whatever the next thing is for them. And for me, that was the thing. I just never stopped and got a little better at it, got some attention from it. And that encouraged me to keep moving on. I grew up in the Central Valley of California and even though it can get dry, dusty, and some people just do not like it, when that sun sets and you get the blue skylight and you get the red sunset light across those kind of cashmere, yellow grassed hills, oh, yeah. the patterns of light and shadow, are just, they're just unbelievable. And anyone thinks they're beautiful, but me on this art path, I just, you know, I, I have to learn, like, why does this, why does it look electric? And I swore that I would learn how to paint it. You know, I'd come back someday and I'd do it. And I, I go back many times with my sketchbook and try and catch, try and see if I can get the paint somehow to approximate that magic. So, you know, that was kind of the, the typical
0: path. Nice. Um, what sort of work were you doing that you were getting a little bit of
1: recognition for early on? Well, uh, the dumb thing I was doing was I was copying stuff, you know, and then people would see it and say, it looked great. Well, of course it looked great. <laughs> I was copying, you know, every kid copies comics or, or does whatever. But uh, then I started sketching my friends Mm -hmm. and even like their, their parents bought a few of the drawings I did. One of my friends was a star basketball player in high school. I did some drawings of him playing basketball and his parents said, oh, we'd like to buy one of those. Well, I thought that was great. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think they even paid me like 50 bucks for it or something, which, which is an astounding sum, you know, in 1986, you know, for a, a high school kid. So that was encouraging. And uh, I just wanted to keep going and going from there.
0: So then, after some of that recognition, I, s- I saw that you went to Art Center. I did go to Art Center. And had you looked at other schools, or what made you pick Art Center specifically?
1: I, I had some taken some classes, and just here and there, and it was clear to the teachers that I was extremely serious. Like, and and I'll go ahead and say because I, I cracked the joke at the at the top that, you know, uh, you you feel very average until you really focus on one thing and, and get get a little recognition and start to improve at it. And so I became a fanatic about drawing, painting, practicing. And, and so that was clear to my teachers that I just was not going to stop. I was just going to, I was going for it. And so they said, well, art center is a place that you need to go to and several different you know, they kind of, it was very generous because they kind of pulled me aside, you know, like, you're not kidding around about this stuff. You need to go to Art Center. And so that's what pointed me in that direction. Oh, wow. Did you have any specific mentors before
0: Art Center or were you being self-taught at that point?
1: There, There's an artist, he's still around. Uh, he's a wildlife painter named Leon Parson. He went to Art Center. Extraordinary artist across the board, but what he eventually went into was landscape and wildlife painting. And I was a big admirer and, and had an opportunity to take some classes from him. And he's one of the guys who said, now, you know, I I said, oh, I was thinking about this school or that or doing this or that. He's like, no, no, you're you're going to art. So he almost said it as if, (laughs) no, as if he's my dad, you know. No, there's no possibility you're going to do those things. You're going to art center. And he wrote me a letter of introduction. He knew people uh, at art center and had been a student there. And that was my entrance to art center. Oh, very cool. And was there a specific focus that you knew you wanted to do within art center? No, I love drawing and painting. I thought at that time, because I work in animation now, it's kind of ironic that I had no plan to go into animation at that time. Because I kind of thought of animation, I thought of it as being car- the cartoony thing. And so I thought, well, I would do like book cover paintings mm-hmm. and you know, dramatic stuff like that and, and be an illustrator. And so that's what I had in mind. In fact, I was such a, I was such a fanatic about drawing that they had to set me straight at the beginning of art center. It's actually, it was probably the. It may have been the most important thing that happened to me at art school, and I didn't recognize its important at first. All, I'll tell you about it, because right at the beginning, I had this portfolio review with one of the uh, instructors. There, and we are going through my portfolio, it was mostly drawings, and I prided myself on my accuracy and I, I thought I was being stylish in my drawings as well. Yeah. And so we're going through there, and he's asking me, and I was talking about how you know drawing really meant a lot to me and and I, I felt that traditional drawing was important, you know, unlike those fakers over there in the fine art department <laughs> you know who think just because they did something, it's art because I was in the illustration department. And it's always, especially at that time, it was kind of 90s were a transitional time at art schools. But especially at that time, there's always that fight between the kind of illustration and traditional drawing and painting. And the fine art department, which ironically to some people usually eschews any kind of traditional drawing and painting. So I said this to this instructor, not realizing that he was one of those faker fine art instructors. <laughs> and so he said, oh, really? Well, which drawings are you talking about You know that, that aren't like, what's the fine art? And so, well, I think this one is like, no, no. You know what? I know exactly who you are looking through your portfolio. You are trying to be the big man on campus who can draw better than everybody else. And you are transparent. And people, it'll attract their attention. For they'll give you a pat on the back and say, "Wow, you know, so you drew that? Wow, it's amazing," and they'll forget about you ten minutes later. So there's, there's no emotion in your drawings. You know, they aren't. You aren't making an emotional connection. And that was the first, uh, that was the first hit that there was something out there that I really didn't get about being an artist. And even though that helped. I didn't truly get it all the way until several years later when I was working at DreamWorks Animation. And basically, uh, I didn't get fired or anything. I had 15 fantastic years at DreamWorks and very proud of what we did there. But basically, kind of metaphorically speaking and condensing several years into one event, they basically took me out to, and for people listening in who aren't in this area, we're in Los Angeles right now, of course. Mm -hmm. And people think, oh, the beach, you know, the palm trees. And that's true. It's beautiful. But on the other side of LA is the Mojave Desert, you know, where all the bodies are buried. (laughs) And basically (laughs) they took me out to the desert and they beat me until I got it. Because you are not an artist until your work in some way has an emotional connection with your intended audience. It took me way too long to get that. And so even I'm I'm still a fanatic about doing good drawing, accurate drawing, even stylish drawing or painting, if that's what you wanna do. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't have some kind of emotional connection with your audience, I'm sorry, but you're going nowhere because no one cares until they feel it.
0: Right, yeah, I think that's a great perspective, absolutely. Did you have a breakthrough piece where you felt like you had created some sort of emotional
1: resonance? I did, but I I also took a lesson from that breakthrough piece that I try and bring to the students that I have now because I'm still full-time in animation and full-time artist and illustrator, but I also do some teaching Mm -hmm. uh, when production schedule allows. And so one of the things I learned about those breakthrough pieces, you know, I did a I did a piece that's still hanging up the Los Angeles Academy of Figurative Art where I did teach for many years. And it's a big, giant, three-foot-by-four-foot portrait painting. And I use these big three-inch brushes, five-inch brushes, and, and just, it all finally clicked the the accuracy of the portrait combined with the warm temperatures the cool temperatures the lost and the found the expression because I I thought beautiful color and accuracy was enough in doing a portrait until I was informed that your portraits all have frowns and everyone hates them (laughs) because they don't care about your beautiful brushwork they see the expression and you know those every 19th century or 18th century photograph, or early photography, they'll have frowns because they had to sit there for 30 seconds or even 10 minutes while it exposed. Right, And so that's you always wonder, why are they so, you know, those were hard times. They probably <laughs> were, but no, they had to sit for five minutes for that exposure. Well, portrait painting, portrait drawing is the same. Your sitter sits and their face turns into a frown. I finally finally learned that you can do all the beautiful brushwork in the world. And if people see a frown, that's what they feel. Anyway, so I finally figured that out and got the painting down, the warms and cools, where to put the lost edges, the hard edges, the soft edge. And I did this big, giant piece and just all these different things that are so hard and so complicated, they clicked. But at the same time, I kept that piece in my portfolio for a long time until my friendly wife suggested, like, that was your breakthrough art school piece, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It's time to take it out. (laughs) And everyone has that piece that they have an emotional attachment to. And five years later, they don't realize that it doesn't hold up anymore compared to their new work. Because they was like, they got so much attention from it five years ago.
0: Right. When you were finishing up at Art Center and at that
1: point, had you, did you know you wanted to do animation? No, still not. But I'll, I'll tell you what I did know, because this was a, a big deal to me. So the early 90s, the invention of computer CG. And I'm not a CG guy. I'm a traditional painter, so to speak. All my professional work is done digitally. But, uh, and I do some, a little bit of 3D work and 3D modeling, not much because I hate it. And so I do the absolute minimum because I'm a painter, you know, at heart, and that's the concept art. They're paintings. But 1993, and I'm in art school, and Jurassic Park comes out. Mm. And even though that was 1993, and CG has come so that what what was that 25 years ago? Yeah. And so we have come so far, and CG is in almost every movie. Now, and it's great. It's fantastic. I went and saw Jurassic Park. We had never seen anything like that before and I just watched Jurassic Park, the original one, with my kids two weeks ago. They're, they're still little, they're still young. They just hit the age where I feel like, okay, it's not gonna give them nightmares, we watched it. And that scene where the T-Rex comes out into the rain, it holds up, like I cannot believe 1993 and that one scene, is as good as anything being done now. And in the rain, I have some personal experience with CG done in weather. It's hard to do, expensive to do. That scene still holds up. I came home from that movie, I looked at the artwork that I had on my desk, that I was doing, and that artwork was very small and very weak by comparison. Mm-hmm. And I think I laid in bed all day and couldn't get out of bed, just, just <laughs> like I, I'm a nobody. And that was a game changer for me. You know, I pulled myself out of bed, dusted myself off and told myself you can't do what you've been doing it's it's go big or go home you have to any you just you're doing this now and you're going to knock down any barrier that keeps you from doing this yeah. whatever you know move. and so we saw this coming and this was a difficult time in art school because they were still grounded in what an illustrator did in the 80s which is editorial illustration mm-hmm. and i had to go to some of my teachers and tell them you know i'm not going to do this I'm just not. This is it now. And that was the smartest thing I ever did because concept art, animation, movies, that was the big thing on the horizon. And I was, we, we saw it coming right there 1993. And I was part lucky in timing. And so... I had an opportunity then to have my portfolio seen at DreamWorks. Uh, It was a year after I was out of art school. I was working actually in theme park show design, doing an illustrator. I was doing, I had a job. Yeah, incredible. I was actually doing concept art for theme parks, but I had an opportunity to show my portfolio at DreamWorks and luckily that went well and history. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, that whole time period for me especially is so
0: inspiring. But yeah, definitely a product of the Lucas Spielberg canon and all of the books of concept art that were coming out around that time. I was just devouring those things and so inspired. That's what really launched me into wanting to do film.
1: Yeah, and no one was teaching that at art schools yet.
0: DreamWorks was sort of just getting off the ground with animation at that point. 95? Yeah.
1: Yeah. wow, so were you part of that freshman class? right at the beginning, really? That was something that I don't want to say it'll never happen again because there's always new collaborations and the, the new big thing and amazing opportunities. It's a better time right now than any time in history, mm. you know, even better than the 90s because so much is happening right now. But uh, just just by that chance of, of timing, and combined with me just being a, a nutcase about you know feverishly drawing and painting day and night because that's just just my my personality. Steven Spielberg had amblimation in London, had been doing um, Five Fivel Goes West was a sequel and a, right. an American tale, an American tale. He was, yeah. was, was doing those shows. And so that's what was happening in animation at that time. Disney had was kind of a little bit dead, but they had their resurgence starting with The Little Mermaid. Anyway, so Spielberg had the best artists from all over Europe at Amblemation doing animation and design and lots of projects and development. He shut all that down at the start of DreamWorks, but he invited all of those artists, you know, he would pave the way to get their green cards, visas, whatever it took to come over to DreamWorks. He needed that talent and that experience. So I was brand new to animation. These people were more experienced than I was. We had people that had been kind of poached from Disney with experience coming over. And so it was this melting pot of people from all over animation, all over Europe. It it, it was, you you just, you can't believe it. Oh, and here's the other thing. There was a bit of a price war, I, I think, with Disney. And I wasn't in on this because I was new and not experienced in animation. But you know, you have to pay for experienced talent. And so it got to a point where DreamWorks said, you know, we can't raise, uh, you know, astronomically the amount that we pay anybody. So what we're going to do is we're going to have great food and it's going to be free. We're going to serve breakfast and lunch every day. And we're going to serve fresh baked desserts every day at three o'clock. Do you know how much weight (laughs) I gained during my first? And then I lost. I had to, I had to like, I had to do my fanatic thing. You're blowing it, buddy. And so I, I, I lost I you know I gained like 15 pounds and then I had to n- knock that off. <laughs> but I'll tell you if you don't mind, there there's one other thing that I have to tell sure, about of that course. that time period. It was such a melting pot. We had this, and to this day I don't know what the story behind this was. But we had this old guy, amazing guy, who had an office on the DreamWorks campus. He was 83 years old, I think. And He had been a production designer in Hollywood for many years production designed a lot of Hollywood movies So for whatever reason he had an honorary office at the studio Mm. He wasn't involved in any of the projects as far as I knew he wasn't developing developing projects But I think he was a friend of Steven Spielberg and it was his way of kind of staying engaged You know in his old age, so he was he was around on campus and so one day he bumps into one of the French artists, and he, he says to the, the French artist, he says, oh, I can tell by your accent you're from France. Keep in mind this, the older guy is something like early 80s. He said, I can tell you're, you're from France. Where in France are you from? And he said, oh, I'm from Brittany. And he said, oh, Brittany, I bombed your town during the war. Oh, my God, Oh, wow. What do you say to that? Great opener. Yeah. And for what it's worth, you know, he wasn't bombing civilian, Brittany friendly right. town, you know, but I, I think if I remember right, it was something about there was a U-boat installation at the port. And I think that was uh, the, yeah. the target, you know, so I don't think he was <laughs> taking out relatives or anything, but wow, that that's the kind of melting pot that it was at oh, that time. What an
0: incredible, I mean, the new campus of DreamWorks, which is gorgeous mm-hmm. and, you know, all that energy flowing just must have been incredible.
1: It was It was remarkable.
0: And so when you started there, what department were you in? Were you an animator or were you background? or visit? I started backgrounds,
1: background. yeah. So we, and um, in, in a lot of people know this, but some don't back in those days in traditional animation, the departments were very compartmentalized to, to get a smooth running, streamlined production pipeline. And so there was layout department that would draw up the scenes and then the background department we would do color keys which are just small sketch paintings that establish the color and the lighting design so we'd get that approved to make sure we had the right mood mm-hmm. the right kind of feel we'd paint those keys and then we would have the line work for the layouts and then we in acrylics we would do finished paintings that appear in the show yeah and obviously that was replaced when we went to shrek and, and the cg stuff so at that point i became a, a visual development artist which was uh, more of a front end kind of design thing which was fantastic and a lot of artists might think oh yeah you got to be on the front end uh, you know and have more of a c- contribution which is great but i always miss just you sit down and you do your painting you know you yep. just you sit down and you do it has to be a good looking painting it has to be and uh, i i miss that
0: actually i think two of those early films will weston who i've interviewed before who's now teach running the entertainment arts track at Art Center. he often references Prince of Egypt and Road to El Dorado to really look at the background and visual development of those films. Interesting times. Yeah, I bet. Very cool. And then so you were DreamWorks for 15 years? 15 years. Wow, incredible. And did you have any
1: mentorship over there, or is there a training crew, or are they just throw you in the deep end? Uh, they, They do throw you in the deep end, but we had, it doesn't exist now for the most part. For instance, at the beginning of The Prince of Egypt, all of us in the background department, the paintings have to look like they come off the hand of the same artist. And so we all had to be on the same page. And so our leader was Paul Usain as far as style. And Paul Lissane, for anyone who's not familiar with his work, he's one of the best artists I've ever met mm-hmm. and great guy. And that was a mentorship for all of them. And I've worked with Paul off and on over the years. I still, you know, it's funny. I think Paul's five years older than me. And so at that time, it seemed like a lifetime of experience that he had that I didn't have yet. He's like five or six years older than me is all, but oh my gosh, what he could do back back then. So I think I was like 20, 26, 25, 26, oh. and he was 30, 31. Anyway, now our ages are negligible. You know, five years now is just not that much of a difference. Right. But um, I still look at his work and think of him as this guy who's still way, you know, and I'm just sure. I don't I mean, I don't really know this for sure because Paul is a hard worker, but I'm still that fanatic. You know, I got a sketch. I got a paint. I got it. And so I'm just convinced that I put in more hours than him <laughs> and he is still out there ahead. And so is still he's he's in my mind then and now just always like kind of the mentor guy, the guy right. to look to.
0: Wow, cool. I, I'm not too familiar with his work. I'll definitely have to.
1: Yeah, it's around. You can find stuff online. Oh, yeah. cool! I'll definitely have look.
0: So after DreamWorks, did you go
1: freelance or move to a different studio? I went freelance. Yeah, I got a call from my wife from the hospital. Now that was fine. It was a checkup on her pregnancy, and I said, hey, babe, how did the you know a checkup go? Oh, it went really good. Oh, all right, glad to hear. It. Yeah, it went doubly good. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> glad it went so well. You know, like that's not you know something's a little a little odd about yeah yeah doubly good did you hear what i just said doubly good and then i got it twins amazing so you know dreamworks is a reasonable place to work as far as hours but they're you know from time to time there's some pretty brutal overtime to, mm-hmm. to have the trailers ready and then get the you have a hard day those those release dates it's like a Chess match, like you have to hit that check checkmate on the day you release your movie. If you have to move the movie to a different date, you might make fifty million dollars less, right. you know, on the wrong date. And so you have to do whatever it takes. So those things happen. And then there's the L.A. commute. So even if you get out of work, it was pretty typical. People finish up at six o'clock. Well, you know, you have twin babies at home, and and they go to bed by seven. You know, they eat at six. They go to bed by seven. And, you know my uh, my wife was having a hard time my, my little babies I wasn't seeing them right and I got a call from Blue Sky Studios and I said hey we don't know if you're free but you know so a couple people over there were familiar with my paintings and they said we are uh, we could use some freelance help on some shows coming up do you have any availability and I said well I'm here in LA I'm not available to move out to the East Coast where they're located there's no problem if you were able to work out of your home studio we're fine for, with freelance and i took that as as to make the break right. after 15 years at dreamworks and uh, that was great we worked on uh, rio 2 we worked on ferdinand the bull mm-hmm. and uh, had a great time on that but that was the thing that spurred me to make the break from dreamworks i thought i might go back in house mm-hmm. working from home uh, oh my gosh i mean it's at times it's it's you know it's very difficult and has its ups and downs but you know to be able to take a nap in the middle of the day if you feel like you really need it that's worth anything you lose that one thing right there yeah
0: absolutely <laughs> that's a very good point do you ever miss the energy of being on campus or you know the, I thought I would.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I really thought I would. But a couple things that have evolved over, over the years, I mentioned I do some some teaching. I would started teaching. I started teaching, being the life drawing fanatic, I started teaching life drawing in 1999 mm. and taught that in a classroom for, for a good decade. And then I've switched as, as you know, the kids have gotten older and, and demands, you know, increase. I've taken all of my teaching online. But that's like interaction with other artists and other people that kind of helps fill that. Right. You know, I get to talk to people about art and I get to tell them everything that's wrong with their work, which is loads of fun. You know, I get to tell them every, uh, you know, they only have an outside chance of amounting to something someday. And they take that as a challenge, throwing down the gauntlet. I don't really put it like that. But, you know, and so they're like, oh, yeah, you think I have an outside chance? Well, guess what, Nathan? I'm going to work so hard that I'm going to put you and your twins out of work into the gutter unapologetically well that's the goal you know to spur to spur their enthusiasm and their you know uh, their their work ethic yeah so teaching and out of teaching i get some invites you know to do workshops and visit other places and do some traveling for workshops and that's been enough to to fill that void uh, that i got from the studio
0: i've been fortunate enough to do one of your online classes through schoolism, All which right. was spectacular. There is uh, so much you. information in that has taken my work to the next level. So you're good. yeah, thank you. no, they're great. So I'd love to just get into more sort of how you approach art in general and story and, and stuff like that. When you are approaching a painting, is your approach different than when you're approaching a larger project? Or do you always start at the same point?
1: Here's, here's the story starting point for me. You make sure you have a really good writer. <laughs> uh, because I'm not a writer. That's that's actually uh, what I love about this business, uh, the collaboration of it. You're you're working with great people, and it's kind of like if, if anyone out there has ever played sports with someone who's just a little bit better than they are, but but definitely better, you up your game. You know they can still beat you, but you play better, and that's kind of how it how it is on these projects. So I'm not a writer, but someone has a really great story and then my job is to be able to visualize the story and i wish i could sit down and and do really great paintings and just you know let them just flow off the brush or the you know the pen tool as it were but i start with little tiny thumbnails and the nice thing about that is i'll sit down and just do 10 super quick thumbnails in my sketchbook and they might not even make sense to anyone other than me but out of those 10 or 20 or more one of them is going to have a kernel of an idea like oh there's something there you know that could i could do that with it and i'll take that and scan it in to photoshop and just throw you know some light at it some warm and cool at it and push and pull and see where it's going, and develop it in Photoshop. That way, it's just kind of baby steps. I can do the, I can do a sketch in my sketchbook. Then I can bring a little light to it. Then I can bring some warm and cool, or some color, mm. you know, the, a color mood to it. And then I can bring a little detail in the important areas. And then I can add a couple characters, having done all that life drawing that you know that work with the story. Right. And then all of a sudden, all these things that looked in the finished painting you know, look at it, oh, it's too hard, I don't know how to do that. But these little steps along the way, I can do that. And that's always my approach.
0: How do you like to approach story emotionally?
1: Color scripting, boy, that's, that's what I love. If I get offered a job to color script a project, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll drop a better pain project. That's the thing I, I love the most. And what we often do for that process, a lot of work already gets done we will do a very rough early color script, but then the uh, the director, the storyboard artists, and the uh, pre guys, they will, they'll do a CG rough, they'll do animatics. Mm. And so they'll rough out the scenes in and just very blocked in geometry. And then what we'll do at that point is we'll take all that footage, they'll block out the whole movie and just see how it all feels together. Oh wow. And then it's very rough, very quick, very blocked in but then that can serve as a very simple layout. And so we'll literally just grab frame captures out of that footage. And then I know roughly what the scene is and where characters will be placed. And so I'll paint over top of that in Photoshop and do quick comps that have the right, uh, we hope, the right color mood and the right lighting mood. And the shape, you know, a color script isn't just a color script it's a time of day script. It's a lighting script. It's a color script. It's a mood script. It's a shape script. It's a line script. It's meant to do all of the visual language elements and take you through the roller coaster ride. The way I like to put it is in the same way that the musical score guides us through the emotional ups and downs of a story, Mm -hmm. a good color script is meant to do exactly the same thing. And so that's that's what I love is the color script.
0: Oh, that's really cool. You know, it's interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is because I've, I've been lucky enough to know a lot of people in animation, a lot of people in live action, a lot of photographers, and I often feel like that there's things that live action people can learn from animators, and you know, photographers can teach yeah. live action. And there's not there is crossover, obviously, but that is something that I wish I'd learned in film school is like. You know, they teach you about knowing where the characters are emotionally and how a yeah. shot or a composition might do that. And of course, color plays into it, but but actually taking it to that further step and making a color script, I think is something I'm gonna definitely adopt.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I've been uh, i I love movies and I'm admirer cinematography. I'm just flabbergasted at at what's pulled off in movies in terms of cinematography and filming. And I'm not a photographer. But there have been a few. Like there have been a few of the remakes, and I'm actually thinking of not not the ones the last couple of years, but several years ago. I'm thinking of a couple of where they took classic Disney movies or, or movies that were animated and right. made a live action out of it. And some of them were pretty good and had some good-looking stuff. And a few of my friends even did production design mm. on those shows. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that, that really, frankly, kind of upset me was there was, uh, I think of it without, without, without knowing the photography terminology it was kind of standard a standard photography look where you know the lights are a little burned out so you can see in the shadows and then the shadows are uh, the shadows are a little black a little dark so you can really see what's going on in the midtones and and that sort of a photography kind of a look and sometimes we do that in animation mm-hmm. but sometimes we'll go in and say no there's no white no burnout in this scene it's going to be a color it's either going to be a product of the local color or it's going to be a product of the light. And then you get this palette, thats extra, a palette of color that's extraordinary. That's not always appropriate. You don't do that all the time. But for some moments and some scenes, you do. And that kind of a, a care had been completely missing in some of the live-action kind of fantasy, family fantasy movies. And, and I just felt like it was, it was a loss and a missed mm. opportunity. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's fascinating. What I'm so drawn to, speaking of the color work, is your color work. And you are also one of the most prolific keepers of sketchbooks mm. that I've maybe ever seen. <laughs> like just looking at the giant wall of sketchbooks behind you as we sit in your studio. How did, how did that all come about? Is that just a practice you've kept since you were young?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I, I I keep mentioning it, and maybe maybe it's because uh, you know we're we're doing this interview, and you start to feel a little self-conscious. You know, it's 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 all about you, and so uh, I I mentioned about about my frantic, m- maniacal, you know, trying to get better, trying to get better, and you know, f- felt that way for for many years. The the sketchbook has been the most useful, just the most useful thing because. You know, uh, right here, we're here in my studio right now, and behind us is my desk, and there's sketchbooks scattered all over the desk right there. And then behind is, you know, right behind is another stack of sketchbooks. In my car, a couple of sketchbooks. When I was at uh, other studios or at DreamWorks, I would sketchbooks on my desk there. Basically, anywhere I spend any time, there's a couple of sketchbooks laying around. And so you, there's, there's no excuse. You're, you're always <laughs> yeah. doing something. And so what that means is, after a decade of heavy lifting and this, cause this is what I tell my students, they always worry about, well, do I have the talent or, and I tell them too late, you were already born, you know, and the brain, the genetic code, whatever it is, it's already there, right. you know, uh, too late if you were born with talent or not, it already happened. So forget about that and just practice. And uh, some people, you know, can pull it off in a matter of years and some people takes longer, but after a decade of heavy lifting, Uh, Those those ideas are there. And so if you come across some really difficult challenges, chances are you've taken on something similar in the last 20 years. You've had a similar problem that you've solved. Mm. And then it's almost as if that's muscle memory. And all of a sudden, something clicks into place that you did 10 years ago, and you solved a little problem, and this thing and that thing couldn't come together. And you figured out, oh, if I you know, if I transition the color and then I do this, and then I kind of have this rhythm move right through it, all of a sudden these two different things work together. You know, something like that. You find that solution and then weeks later, months later, years later, the same thing might come up and it clicks into place. Well, if you've done 20,000 sketches, then you have a lot of things that you can draw on that just might click into place for you. Yeah. And so any random person, if they're determined, can really you know, do something special. And I, you know, it's kind of what I've come to because I'm not getting any younger. You know, these years. And the human thing is doing something that has value for other people that's what you do whatever it is you do something that has value for other people when you do that and when you actually have that thing that you do be extra special when you have something of meaning to bring to the table that's when doors open for you opportunities open up for you you know do things of value value for other people and you'll have a valuable life and so you know as I get a little older I start, you know, thinking in those terms.
0: Yeah. Do you think you'll head in a different direction with your art?
1: That is a good question. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately because Todd, you and I were were talking a little bit earlier before we turned on the microphone. I had a bit of a medical scare earlier in the year. Right. Right. I want to tell everyone, don't worry. I'm absolutely 100% fine, you know, in every way. And I'm, in fact, I'm better than 100% fine. But I went through an experience this last year, where the initial diagnosis was, you're dead, and you're going to be dead soon. And you know, it all comes into focus right. in that moment. Quick. And you kind of reevaluate, you know, what your time really means at that point. Right. So it turned out we uh, took care of the situation and they did an in-depth biopsy of what they thought would be a problem. And it turned out the initial diagnosis was wrong. And it was a benign situation. We 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 took care of it. What a relief! <laughs> back back to hundred percent. But I spent three weeks. I, I spent three weeks believing that I had a few years to live. They were they were pretty certain wow. uh, about it. And we were waiting for that you know second and more in depth biopsy to come back. But oh my gosh, you know nobody knows when you're going to end up marching in that black parade right. and everything this is another thing I, I think I thought about a lot since the beginning I remember I used to play it's a song from uh, it's super tramp 70s oh, yeah. band but they're great they're fantastic For sure. uh, super tramp but they had this line and I would listen to this song over and over to motivate myself in art school because I was so uh, I just so wanted I just I wanted this so bad my teeth ached you know <laughs> and so this song has this line super tramp. Uh, about uh, the person they're singing about looks back through the years at what they might have been and what they could have been. And I just thought that would be the word. I could think of nothing worse than getting to an age and looking back and like, what did you do? What, what did it mean? What did it matter? What was it that you let get in the way? And, you know, everything that the, we, we fear, everything that holds us back. You know, everything that we like, oh man, I don't, it's too much. It's all of those things. They don't matter. You know, you, you hit that end and all of that comes to nothing. Right. You know, it means nothing. And you look back at, at what you did. And so I had that experience this year. Uh, what I have to tell everybody though is you guys are stuck with me. I've got <laughs> at least, I've got 30 plus years left. I'm, I'm over here pushing 50 years old. Happy to be of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, everyone stuck with me, you know, yelling at them, my students, you know, yelling at them that they're, you know, when I was at Art Center, we wouldn't put up with homework assignments like you just turned in, you know. <laughs> uh, everyone's got to listen to me do that for the next 30 years, so Great. I'm good. That's good. And do you
0: see yourself moving more into teaching or?
1: No, not necessarily. I, I think if <laughs> I was a full-time teacher, I'd start to hate it. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a nice aside. One of the things, one of the tricks I always use is... Uh, the grass is always greener, and so you're doing something you're like, Oh, I really wish I was doing something else. Yeah. We're all like that, and so I do. I, I, you know, I switch and do my online teaching, and then I'll go back and do my digital, try and reach that deadline. Then I get sick of digital painting. You want to be doing something else, so you do it, uh, and it's a different kind of art, and then you get sick of that, and so you switch to a different kind of art and do that. And so that's how I stay productive,
0: yeah. That's I, I'm kind of the same way, I like yeah. bouncing back and forth keeps, keeps everything fresh for me. So I'm just curious, I know you, we mentioned your schools and classes yeah. online and it's, if anyone is <clears throat> at all interested in learning how to draw like you, I cannot recommend that course enough. And so without getting this specific, so I'd kind of like to maybe just pick your brain a little bit about how you think or how you approach sure, sure light thing. and those, and sketches when you're looking at a scene, are you trying to capture the exact quality of the light or more what it feels like rather than the exact color or. How are you finding those subtleties
1: in your work that make everything kind of come together? One of the hardest things to learn in landscape painting is that it's not possible to paint what you see. It's physically not possible. Your pigment, you know, just, you, you hold up black paint against, you know, like, and hold it up to, against a dark shadow, and that black's reflecting a lot of light back. The black can't match the blackest shadow that you see. Yeah, And same thing with pure white. And so we're trying to paint something with a pigment that is not capable of doing it. And beginners don't, aren't aware of that. They don't understand that limitation. And so they'll see, maybe they'll see a white rock, but it's in shadow. So it looks really bright, so they'll paint it bright. And then they're looking over in the light and maybe there'll be a dark thing in the light and they'll paint that really dark. And then all of a sudden their light and shadow makes absolutely no sense because there's light things in the dark and dark things in the light and it's over, it all falls apart. <laughs> right. And they say, they're, they're baffled, you know, and they're pulling their hair out saying, but I painted it exactly the way I saw it. You know, why did it go so terribly wrong? Well, they were actually trying to paint what they saw or what they felt like they saw in the moment. Mm. and. I know that's kind of counterintuitive that you don't paint what you see, and a lot of people have heard, paint what you see, not what you know. Well, there's some truth to that. We kind of know what a thing looks like and paint a symbol of it instead of how it really looks. But what I'm always pushing my students to do is to squint at their like their landscape painting. Squint their eyes way down so they're just looking through their eyelashes. And all you see are big masses of light and shadow. Mm. And then don't lose that simple statement as you work. Don't let that simple statement get away from you. It's critically important. The one other thing about landscape painting that I think is critical if you're painting on location, you know, there's literally a billion details. You couldn't possibly paint all of them. You wouldn't try. So the question is, which ones are you gonna paint and why? And so. I'm always pushing my students to ask themselves, okay, you saw this spot, you stopped and painted there. There was a reason why you picked that spot. What was it? Pin down. Pin down exactly what it was about that location and then pull that out. Let everything else go. You've got maybe an hour before the light changes if uh, it's a sunny day. And that will give you something that sometimes will be better than a photograph because it has that sense of purpose.
0: Right, that's a great distinction. I mean, I do feel like the way that you paint light in some ways is almost more special than a photograph, and I love photography, but there's a subtlety with paint that I feel like, you know, even with you know, the super high-res digital is just not gonna capture.
1: Yeah. Well, I do have a trick. <laughs> My trick, I call it poor man's impressionism because that's what it is. But, you know, uh, we all know about like Sero who did, you know, and it was a breakthrough what they were doing back then in the 1800s, you know, he did Seurat the artist who, the pointless, dot, 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 oh, dot, yeah. dot, dot. And then you stand back and it make all makes sense. And he put colors together optically. That was a breakthrough. That was kind of the big breakthrough of the Impressionists. You put two colors together that have a contrasting hue, but they're similar in value. Mm and they they kind of vibrate that's a known art visual thing you know they call it simultaneous contrast where you might have a blue gray and you might have a yellow gray and the yellow gray just looks drab and brown and the blue gray just dead and cold they're just completely dead you put them side by side and by the contrast of each other these two dead grays all of a sudden vibrate and have some life and if you paint like that that uh lushness that happens with real light you know just that visual that the paint can't capture the way that paint can capture that is that optical uh optical mixing well i don't have the patience that sarou had and that poor guy i think he worked himself to death he died when he was like 29 or something uh tragically. But what I like to do is get out there and you have your hour deadline, you know, before this California sunshine, Uh, you have about an hour and then you're seeing a different uh, light and shadow composition. Uh, So I like to kind of just dry brush. Like you might look at a sky and say, yeah, it's a blue sky, but the sunlight is streaming through it, backlighting it. And if I had to put a color, if I had to call it a color, sure, I would say blue, but somehow it's warm. Somehow it's glowing, you know, more than blue. Well, I'll put a yellow wash down, I'll kind of scumble it on so it dries immediately. And then I'll dry brush a blue over top of it that's about the same value, meaning the same darkness mm. as the yellow. And so a little bit, still blue, but a little of that yellow peeks through the dry brush stroke. And so you have that little dot, 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 dot of the texture, it's like pointillism. And all of a sudden, your blue sky has a little bit of a vibration, a luminous luminosity, a warm glow. And all of a sudden, it's a little more like light. And so I treat my paintings like that Mm. when and where I can and where I think it's appropriate. And all of a sudden, paint, which can't do anything near what light can, all of a sudden it starts feeling like it does. Right. And you're using a combination of watercolor and gouache mainly for your Yeah, I like, you know, every medium has its ups and downs uh, and I tried everything and had a lot of disasters early on, my early efforts <laughs> with oils and acrylics and all of that. So what I came to was watercolors. And I never thought of myself as a water- watercolorist, but the pigments, they dry out just as fast out in the hot sun as gouache or acrylics would right on your palette. And I tried every scheme to keep them wet, but I just, you know... Uh, Too much, I was fighting the paint. You don't have time to fight the paint. Well, watercolor, it dries out as fast as anything else, but you spritz it with a little spray bottle, a good brand of watercolor like Winsor Newton, which I use, it comes right back to life. And so it's so convenient for on-location sketching, all of a sudden I found myself a watercolorist. But as you paint with acrylics or oils and you use white, you know, you use white, not because it's white, but you use white to mix the color that you need. I still use white gouache with my watercolors and paint the same as if i were using all gouache or all oil or all acrylic Mm. that just became my go-to medium right do you still keep a sketchbook daily
0: yes i do yeah that's very sometimes
1: (laughs) sometimes it's three lines like almost literally like okay i'm dead tired you know like i i'm i literally cannot keep my eyes open but if I let this daily habit slip away, if I let a few days go by, it'll turn into another day. It'll turn a week, a month. So doing three lines is not going to help you in the, you know, 25 year scheme of things. Those three lines will not help you, but it keeps the habit in place. Right. And so I sit down and do, how can I put a rectangle and then put a circle and two lines in an interesting way? And I do that 30 seconds and then I've done my daily sketch and I go to bed. Yeah. But it's because it's the habit. If you let that habit slip away, the dream could slip away.
0: Right. This might be a tricky question, but if you had to say what was more important to making a good sketch or a good, let's just call it a good piece, would you put the emphasis on composition or that color contrast?
1: type of thing, or yes, is it just I'm, everything? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I hate the answer to this question. Because I was going on and on about, you know, patting myself, you know, everyone listening to the podcast like, yeah, Nathan, you know, don't break your arm patting yourself on the <laughs> back about, you know, yeah, I'm a great at drawing. I practice every day, and I, I'm, I'm the big man on campus for drawing. And, and color, you know, oh yeah, color, my color vibrates, and it's so luminous, and, and everyone's going to love it and everything. So, I hate the answer to your question because it's not color and it's not draftsmanship, you can do an image that has really amateurish color. And you can do an image that has very amateurish drawing. And if it has a knockout composition, just something that just grabs your attention, you know, from 20 yards away and you just have to, it draws you in. It just has this you Know knockout punch, right? It's just you know, just I, I'm getting now. I'm getting even though I'm upset about it, I'm getting all excited about it because <laughs> it's just this composition all of a sudden becomes the rolling boom of thunder that makes your artwork come to life. When I so much want it to be the draftsmanship and I want it to be the color and the light, but composition will do that for you. And if your draftsmanship isn't so good and your color isn't so good, you know what people will say that just drives me insane? What's that? They'll assume that you did it on purpose. They'll say, yeah, you know, it's very, uh, it has like a a charming naivete, or they'll say it has has like, you know, you're really rough and scratchy and your technique is terrible. They'll say, oh yeah, such an aggressive technique. You know, (laughs) if your composition is engaging, people will forgive just about anything else.
0: Oh yeah, that's interesting. Uh, That just reminds me that uh, Carl Ganas uh, has a great, just one-liner that his composition is storytelling. Yes. And I I just think that that's so powerful, yeah. When you are sitting down with your sketchbook and you're looking at a scene, do you have a specific thing in mind that you're trying to achieve or explore?
1: Yeah, there's two different kinds of illustration and they go in very different directions. And there's even a a problem with the crossover because there are some really amazing artists out there and and I I really admire. And they'll do uh, book cover work and do kind of personality illustrations, the kind of work, you know, their thing. And so they'll do some interesting shapes and they'll kind of brush in some interesting textures, and then that will inspire them like, oh, that could become a cliffside, and then those shapes right there. I could actually turn that into a spaceport, and then I could lead you into the scene and have some spaceships coming in or or whatever it might be. And they just let it evolve, and so these completely unexpected and amazing compositions can come out of that, something that you wouldn't think of cold and off the cuff. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when you're working in production illustration and in animation i'm sorry but you're supposed to put a fence right there and you're (laughs) supposed to put a hut right there and you have to put another thing right there and the issue is those things don't necessarily go together in fact chances are they're not going to look good together at all and so I'm, i'm glad you brought composition into the question because that's exactly the answer. To me, the definite composition or what it's all about is here we have an image filled with all kinds of different things. Sometimes they're very unrelated. And as an artist, you've got to find a way, you have to have a whole arsenal of varying ideas on how to make all of those different things feel like they belong together mm-hmm. and not just belong together they have to all feel like they're like one in purpose back to that knockout punch right and that is so hard to do and i remember a particular occasion we were working on one of the shrek projects and i'd been working so hard as the scene it had a lot of characters in it and it was like this concept piece that set up all the characters and uh and, and Shrek, I think he was telling a story with characters gathered around him. And I spent a lot of time on it. And the director came in and he said, oh, you know, I, I like it, good job, but we just had a story meeting this morning and now instead of sitting down, he's standing in the doorway. So I know you've been working really hard on this and I know that you know you keep <laughs> your characters on separate layers in Photoshop. Just grab your, she- your Shrek and scoot him over into the doorway and you're done. It's great, you know? (laughs) And then the meeting's over and then the production manager comes over, you know, with their clipboard says, okay, so you're gonna wrap this up, you know, you're gonna wrap this up and then we're gonna move you on to sequence, you know, 200 and whatever. And I said, no, it's not. And that's not what's gonna happen because that composition worked and scooting him over, even though he said to do that, if I do that and he comes back and looks at it, he's gonna say, what the heck are you doing? This looks horrible. I know that will happen. <laughs> totally. And what you're asking for is a recomposition. And that's just the nature of the beast. When I decided what classes I was going to teach on schoolism, I went for what I consider to be the big three. There's actually four, but I'm not good at one of them. Mm. So, <laughs> so once you have your foundation, your draftsmanship, your perspective, to be a concept artist, you've got to be good at color and light. So that was my first schoolism class. You've got to be able to create special, magical, meaningful places. So my second class was environment design. But then the third one was composition because that clenches it. All of those environmental elements, all of those characters, the way the light and shadow works with all of the environmental elements and all the characters, what a mess. It's a disaster every single time unless you have compositional ideas that are going to bring all of those things together. The fourth thing is character design. And even though I did all the life drawing and, and I'm prou- proud of that, I'm not so much of a character designer, but, uh, you know, at Schoolism, we have some of the best character designers in the business doing their class. So, right. <laughs> all, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to say, don't take my class. Go over and take the character design class. It's going to be important. <laughs>
0: But you also have a, a new class coming up, right, with the the portraits and charcoal. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the
1: the I'm, I, yeah, teaching has been such a great thing for for me, and so uh, those are my three concept art uh, art classes that I mentioned. Then, because watercolor is, I, I'm a nut on that subject, so we did the watercolor sketching class at Schoolism. Yeah. And now uh, the other thing I keep mentioning, life drawing, and you know, I got beat up at Art Center about the way I was approaching life drawing. Right. Now I know what I'm doing. Now I. <laughs> (laughs) After all these years, I know how the game is played. So I am, I'm gonna be doing a life drawing uh, class. And how do you do a life drawing class? Well, it's portrait drawing and charcoal. And the students, you know, they're gonna, if, if they're independently wealthy and they wanna hire a model, that's fantastic but they're going to get their friends and family to pose for mm-hmm. them. And if their friends and family says, heck, no, I'm not going to sit for you. You're, you, know, what are you Are you joking? Then they can look in the mirror and they can do self-portraits. They can light themselves all different kinds of ways. We can experiment. You just set up two mirrors and you can get your head from any angle just by two mirrors reflecting into each other. Mm, right. So it's the easiest thing in the world uh, uh, if you want to really learn how to draw. And if you can construct a head, Construct the head, you know, three dimensionally in drawing with light and shadow, and you can make hair feel like something different than flesh, and you can make light feel like light, shadow feel like shadow. If you can do that, you can do anything. And so uh, that's gonna be my new class for for 2020.
0: Wow, very cool! And you have a book already, though, right? Yes, the, yeah.
1: yes. Um, my because the the landscape sketching class. Thank you, by the way, for mentioning the the book. Mm-hmm. If do we have time for me to tell a little story about the book? Yeah, for sure. Because it's actually because we, we got pretty heavy there for a minute. Because uh, you know we're we're having fun here, and that's how it's meant to be. For but sure. at the same time, life hits you with a couple of bullets. Each one of us, or someone close to us. You know, is I don't mean literally hit by a bullet. I, I hope, <laughs> right. I'm I'm going <laughs> yeah. to assume that's not going to happen to nearly all of the people, but you will get hit one. You know, you will get hit and it'll knock you all the way down, and you you got to be you got to be in some way wearing that that bulletproof proof vest and and be able to to deal with it. So you know, we we got heavy with what was for a moment life and life and death kind of a situation so my my landscape sketching book i'd done the class and i was really excited to take that material expand on it and i'd been doing a bunch of new paintings and and bring it all together in a instructional sketching and painting landscapes mm-hmm. in watercolor and then this medical thing hit and what had happened was they found uh, they found a mass on my spine, mass growing on my spine. Yikes, you do not want that. No. And I so I started getting I started getting numbness in my hands, I started getting numbness in my feet. I started having these problems. And I, I'm a person, you know, I live and die by my hands. This was horrifying. When in at first it was misdiagnosed and then they figured out what it was. As I mentioned earlier, initially they thought that it was a life or death kind of situation. Right. It turned out not to be. So, it got really bad, it got to the point, uh, with the way it was being on my my spinal column, it was a- affecting my ability to use my hands. And I got to the point where I could not work oh. uh, for a period earlier this year. And so, Uh, And so here I am, you know, and I had to, I even had, I had this great gig, Marvel Entertainment. I was so excited. I was branching out a new thing, working, you know, I got hired onto this gig at Marvel. I had to drop out of it because this, this pain and numbness uh, that was a result of this got so bad. uh, I dropped out of that project. I, I couldn't. Uh, I also lost my voice oh my as gosh. a product of it. Wow. It got really bad, Todd. That's pretty bad. I'm, and I want to say again, everyone out there, you know, uh, students, I'm good. Uh, future clients, I am back to a hundred percent. This is this is done and gone. But but uh, in in an interview like this, we're talking about real life, right? For sure. And For sure. and how how hard it can hit you. And so I'm, I'm using my imminent death to pitch my new book, which, which is just the perfect <laughs> angle. I'm just, I'm positioning my, my book perfectly here. I can't do anything. And I can't, uh, I, I can't draw and paint for very long because the repetitive motion, just the numbness and pain yeah. was horrific. And so what I did was, I, I have my whole, whole thing, you know, my whole professional identity has, has been, and this is, and it's a total lie, but don't lie to other people but go ahead and lie to yourself if it works you know go ahead and tell you oh you're i'm great you know it's a lie i'm not but tell yourself whatever you need to tell yourself to get the job done and so every morning i would wake up there's this song it's uh, it's really energy really loud it's about this gladiator but Gladiator, you know, you can't stop me. I'm marching into the arena. I might die, but I'm doing it anyway. I'm, I'm in, baby. All the, And it's loud. It's aggressive. And here I am all, you know, all shriveled up. Oof. I listen to this song, and I get all worked up. And then I hobble to my studio. And I, I look like death warmed over. Wow. But in my mind... I am the gladiator, and you cannot. There is nothing you you can't do. You cannot. You know, I'm tripping over the stairs, walking up to my studio. My stairs are stopping me, but in my mind, I'm gonna lie and say, no, no, it's, no, it's not. You know, I just I, I'm, this is a triumph. This is the moment that I've been training for all of my life. There's still something I can do, and guess what? That is, I can finish my book. Uh, I can't draw and paint, but, you know, in, in Photoshop and in the design program, I can shuffle the images around. I can, I can do my page layouts. Right. I can do all my pages. I, I have that much. And I mentioned I'd lost my voice. I tried whispering for voice capture because how do you write a book when you cannot type? I right. couldn't type. Uh, but my phone, my phone... Uh, my computer headset couldn't do voice capture. I tried it on my phone. My voice, uh, my phone could understand me whispering, and so I dictated that entire book whispering into my phone, and then I would email it to myself. No and, kidding. Wow. And, put, and we have editors, of course, uh, fantastic people at Design Studio Press mm-hmm. who have published my books, and so they, they, you know, they touch it up for me. But that's how I wrote my book, oh, and nice. then so I put all that together. Uh, page layouts and then I have to have I mentioned so I have this mass that they found and they think it's cancer yeah and they think you know and this kind of cancer is the kind they thought it was uh, vicious and even if you take it you know you take it out it's going to come back and that's what they thought it was and so I am at the hospital with my wife in the hospital bed getting ready to go into surgery and I dictated the last chapter of my book into my phone Wow. emailed it to the publisher and i was done i finished the book gladiator <laughs> I actually man that is hard, to hard. Yourself <laughs> works. just you know uh you, you you know you do you do that's that's kind of the thing you know you you frame things i don't know it's it's real life you just frame things in a way that's useful to you and then you you do it absolutely in the end of the day, it's all the story we tell ourselves, right? Yeah. And by the way, uh, uh, we're so proud of the book. I'm uh, read it. I, I'm I'm so convinced that people get a lot out of it. But skip that last chapter. It makes absolutely no sense that I'm in the hospital. But other than that, it's no. They cleaned it up for me. We're we're good. We're really proud of it. Yeah.
0: Book. I can't wait. Uh, when's it? It's coming
1: out in two weeks. So yeah, it's we had it a lightbox, which was an amazing expo that we did a couple of weeks ago, and Schoolism was involved in that, and I had a booth. So we sold out of the advanced copies but it's pre pre-order, pre-order on Amazon pre-order on design studio press maybe by the time this podcast comes out it might be actually ready to ship so jump on Amazon jump on design studio I think it's designstudiopress.com I, I should so. know I do know this <laughs> I, I, but I'll uh, put all the rele- relevant yeah. links in there for yeah everyone. thank you yeah. it's it's out there great I cannot wait to see it you know I came out of the surgery the doctor said, okay, to my wife, we successfully, you know, the surgery was very successful. Though you have to prepare yourself for the likelihood because of where we were working, uh, there's a likelihood that he will have paralysis. Mm. So here we go. We're, here we go from if this biopsy, initial biopsy holds, you know, he's gone. Right. And uh, the time he has left, we're looking at a likelihood based on how we had to do the surgery that he's going to have uh, uh, paralysis. So when I came out of the surgery, and this is kind of embarrassing, because instead of like, you know, talking to my wife and, you know, hey, babe, um, I I woke up and I didn't even know. I didn't know who was in the room. I woke up and I felt my hands, you know, I jiggled my hands and they, they seemed normal. So I lifted my hand up in the air. And I started and you guys, you know, we're in, in radio audio land here, and so they can't see what I'm doing, but I'm kind of I'm kind of swiveling my hand back and forth. I'm making drawing movements. Right. And my wife like looked at me, she was in the room, and here I am lifting I'm kinda of coming, you know, kind of coming to and lifting my arm up and making these weird gestures. And she's thinking, oh no, he's gone, his mind is gone. You know, he's <laughs> he's lost it. Uh, no, it wasn't that kind of a surgery. But she's like, "Oh my gosh, he, he's lost it. What's going on?" And she's like, uh, "Hey, hey, babe, are you? How are you feeling? You are, are you okay?" As if to say, "What are you doing?" Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Oh no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm drawing. I'm going through the motions of drawing to make sure I can still do it." Right. And that was the first thing I did coming out of surgery. No paralysis, wow. no long-term problems. People saw it light box, and you see right now I'm wearing an eye, pa- an, an eye patch. Yeah. And it's possible that I'll have to wear it for quite some time because of the spinal thing. It actually caused some double vision, oh, wow. uh, surprisingly. Yeah. But it's correcting itself and I'm wearing an eye patch for a little while. It's kind of fun. Everyone at Lightbox thought I was like, "They're like, is Nathan thinking this is a cosplay venue? You know, what's with the what's with the pirate patch thing?" No, I I had to wear it. People were very generous in their mind. They were thinking, are thinking like, oh, you know, oh, what's with the eye patch? But they, like, oh yeah, you you look great. Wow, you look like a. You know, Nick Fury or, right. <laughs> or something. I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna want to believe the compliment. But so I came out of this horrific thing with, with you know, you've got 30 plus years left to live, no lasting problems. You know, I'm back working at a hundred. I'm better than a hundred percent because I have this thing that every second is even more valuable than it was before, and so I'm working better than I was before. And this eye patch thing, I was joking with the surgeon. He's like, "Sorry about the eye patch. You'll probably have to wear it for a while." your eyes will self-correct you know for, but it's going to take quite a while and i'm like i squint my eye shut half the time <laughs> at my computer screen when i'm drawing when i'm painting i literally squint when i closed so professionally it has absolutely no effect and so i i guess we can kind of come out of this with life is so good yeah. and i you know um, I, 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 can't, I'm, I'm coming at this with, I can't believe the opportunities that I still have. I'm I'm just thinking about, you know, when I came out of that surgery and I was able to uh, get to the point where I was just, I'm walking upstairs, you know, and, and, uh, and I have no paralysis, right. and I'm drawing again, I'm painting again, and I'm back to 100%. This horrific thing was the best thing that could have happened to me.
0: Wow, incredible. Well, yeah. thank you for sharing that story. I know that was an intense time, no doubt. It was, wow, it was <laughs> it was a hell of a thing. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're back to 100% yeah. and can't wait to see what you do next. And- uh, Yeah, me
1: neither. I don't know yeah. for, for sure what, what all of it's gonna be, but there's um, time.
0: Yeah, and I mean, your work is definitely inspired me to to keep a sketchbook in this chat i i need to get back into the daily practice i was doing well for a minute with the uh schoolism stuff but i need to get back into the daily so
1: well we're always there for you cool
0: well thank you so much nathan for taking the time i really really appreciate it and Thanks. thanks for sharing all your work with us thanks todd